Last week in my sermon, we looked at the first verses, the first introduction verses of the Gospel of John in a sermon that I call The Whole Truth because in a few short verses, John tells us about how Jesus Christ is the eternal Word of God, that He is God Himself, part of the Holy Trinity, through whom all things were made, and how He became flesh in order to bring light and life into the world. All the truth of God's desired plan and grace for us is found there. A few weeks before that, I had talked about faith. How faith means not only assenting to the proposition that Jesus is the Son of God and that salvation comes through Him, but it also means being obedient to what He has told us to do. As Jesus Himself said, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Not that any action that we take can save us, but that once we have accepted Jesus, once we are in His family, we are changed. And that change, if it is real, should be reflected in how we live our lives. Because real faith requires obedience. Today I want to sort of take the next step in understanding some of the founding principles of our faith by looking at what the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians, the second chapter, beginning with the first verse. Let's look at that passage now because here we have a number of different themes that weave together some of what we've looked at in the past. Hear now this which is the word of the Lord. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest who were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Just prior to this passage that we've we've read, um, in the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul had begun the letter to the church in Ephesus by telling them that he was grateful and gave praise for the fact that they were followers of Jesus, that God be praised that he had chosen the Ephesian believers, along with Paul and all other followers of Jesus, that he had chosen them for sonship before the beginning of the world, before the creation of the world, and that all believers in Jesus, including the Ephesian Christians, who would be saved and adopted into God's family, We're we're saved by the redemption of Christ Jesus to the praise of his glory. Now here, in the next chapter, chapter 2 of his letter, Paul breaks this great truth down, explaining in more detail how this redemption has occurred. In the first of what we can see as three sections in this passage we just read, Paul starts out by establishing clearly the condition of the people before their salvation, how they were spiritually dead in their sins, separated from God, and so condemned. And so in these first four verses, we read Paul telling the Ephesians and us, because this has come down to us over the past 2,000 years, 
that they and Paul and we had all been separated from God when we were still living under the ways of the world. That is, when we were acting just like other people who did not know God, but instead followed the one whom Paul calls the ruler of the kingdom of the air, who is Satan. For Scripture makes it clear to us, here and throughout all of both the Old and New Testament, that for now, with God's permission, it is Satan who is ruler of the current world. Paul's reference here to the ruler of the kingdom of the air means the devil is lower than heaven, but above the earth. Though we are told in the book of Revelation that the time will come when the Satan will be cast down to earth and bound for eternal punishment. But for now, he is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. It is he who has charge of this earth until God says, enough. And as Satan is the ruler of this age, it is he, rather than God, who sets the worldly standards by which people live in disobedience to God. Now, we've often talked about the fact that those of us who follow Jesus are called upon to live by a completely different set of rules, a different set of standards, than those who have no relationship with God. We have been given a set of holy expectations, a rule of life that Christ Jesus has made known to us, that is carried, communicated to us in Scripture, that God wants us to live in a different way from the rest of the world. And here Paul explains that very simply, that those who are disobedient to God are living by Satan's rules, and in doing so they are focused on trying to satisfy the things of their flesh, the cravings of their physical appetites and their desires. And Paul says we, because there was a time when he too was in that group, as we all were. This is how Satan keeps those whom he desires to control, by making it seem to them that the very best things in life, the things we should all look for and search for and seek after, is the satisfaction of our physical appetites while denying that we are first spiritual beings and that our spiritual well-being is much more important than our physical desires. It is the devil himself who convinces us to satisfy our appetites for hunger or sex or drugs or whatever else it is and to try to gain power and influence and wealth, the things that the devil convinces us are important. But as C.S. Lewis once said, people mistakenly think of themselves as physical beings who also happen to have a spirit when in fact we are spiritual beings at our core who also happen to have a body. It is our spiritual nature that comes first, and it is our spiritual needs that should be addressed first before the needs of our body. But the devil manages to get most people to focus on the physical aspects, the desires of their bodies, while denying their spiritual sides, which are much more important. And the end result, as Paul says, is that we are, all of us, before we come to Christ, deserving of the wrath of God, because we have denied him and gone our own way. Then, starting in verse 4, we have the second section of the passage. And we can see here that Paul establishes that despite the fact that we are deserving of God's wrath, against us for the sins that we have committed, for our rejection of God, our following after the directions of Satan, that instead of his wrath, God has shown his love for us. And he has shown us love for the very simple reason that it is in God's nature to be, as Paul says, rich in mercy. You know, it sometimes seems it's part of our new human nature to demand justice for ourselves, to insist on getting what we think we deserve. 
I will not be slighted. I have rights. I will get what I deserve. Justice will be done. And in purely human terms, perhaps that's understandable. But here and throughout Scripture, we have a very important message that in our relationship with God, the very last thing any of us wants is justice. The worst possible outcome for us would be to get what we deserve. Because what we deserve is God's condemnation for our sinfulness and our rejection of Him. What we deserve, what would be justice, would be eternal condemnation for our failings. Justice would be to be eternally judged and separated from God because of our evil ways. But we are very fortunate that God has chosen not to give us justice for our crimes. That He has chosen not to give us what we deserve for our sins. Instead, He is rich in mercy. And so God has given us a way out of sin, a reprieve from the punishment that we so richly deserve. Paul here introduces the simple concept of God's grace in Christ Jesus. It is simple, but it is extraordinary. Grace, very simply, means unmerited favor. It is a gift you don't deserve that is given anyway. It means that God has chosen to give us His blessing even while we don't deserve it. This is what grace means. Paul tells us plainly that even though we were spiritually dead in our transgressions and so unworthy of any kindness from God, still God chose to show us mercy, to offer us grace, this unmerited favor and gift, to make us who were spiritually dead alive once more in Christ Jesus. Not that we are blessed because of anything we have done, but simply because God chooses to be merciful and kind to us and to offer us grace. Paul sums this same thought up very simply and beautifully in Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 8, when he says this, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Christian authority Dorothy, or Christian author Dorothy Sayers once observed that there is a great chasm which divides Christianity. And it is not that chasm, what most people would think, that is the division between Catholics and Protestants, but rather there's an enormous chasm between those who believe that their salvation is dependent upon something they do and those who understand that their salvation is entirely an unmerited gift from God and that there is nothing they can do to justify or to, uh, to prove that they deserve God's salvation. God did not wait for us to stop sinning he did not insist that we clean up our acts before we could be saved. Knowing our sinfulness and also knowing that we are too weak and lost to be able to help ourselves, God took action while we were still sinners to show us His undeserved grace by sending His Son to save us from our sin. Then, in three very telling phrases, Paul tells us in this passage that because of His grace, God has first made us alive with Christ those of us who were condemned to death, that he has raised us up with Christ, that means bringing us back from death and judgment, just as Jesus was resurrected from death, and that he finally has seated us with him in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus, promising us in this way an eternity in heaven with him because of the redemption we receive in Christ. And Paul assures us that we will continue to experience, as he says, the incomparable riches 
of God's grace, the kindness he has shown us in Christ Jesus throughout all the ages of eternity to come. And then in the final section of this wonderful passage, Paul sums it all up for us. And these are verses that I believe every Christian should memorize. This is, um, I'm going to start publishing lists of verses that you all need to memorize. Last week we talked about John 1 as a section, uh, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. The same was in the beginning with God. Through Him all things were made and nothing was made. You need to learn that. You also need to learn this, Ephesians 2 starting with verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In this final section, Paul gives us the summary of what God has done for us, of how it really works, and what it should mean for us as we move into our future. By God's grace, His unmerited favor, His undeserved blessing, we are saved for all eternity if we simply accept it, have faith and believe that this great gift is for us, that Jesus Christ died for us and we can find salvation in Him. Not, as Paul points out clearly here, that any works or actions on our part will save us. We cannot do anything, as Dorothy Sayer said, that will contribute to our salvation. Only God's free gift of grace can save us. And therefore, we can't boast of anything we've accomplished that would make us worthy of God's goodwill or his salvation. We can only accept the gift of God's grace made available to us by Jesus and accessed by our faith in him. And Paul then concludes this beautiful passage by pointing out, because we are God's handiwork, and it's interesting that the Greek word here literally means we are God's masterpiece. We are the highest point of his creation. Because we are God's masterpiece, we are then created and called to be obedient to God's plan and to do good works. To go out following our salvation and to do God's will in doing good in the world. This is what it means when I've said in the past that true faith involves obedience. If we have accepted Jesus Christ, then we will go out and do the good works God God intends for us. We will fulfill our faith by being obedient to God's command. Faith will lead us into obedience. God's will will be done by the actions in our lives. This then is the great good news, which is what gospel means. The good news that while we did not and we do not deserve it, God in his loving kindness has offered us his grace, his unmerited gift, the gift we did not deserve that we can never justify for ourselves and we can never repay. It came through the great sacrifice of God's son, Jesus Christ, and as we accept Jesus in faith, we receive this gift, we are saved for all eternity, and we can freely and with enthusiasm spend our lives in obedience and service to the one who has chosen to show us such great love. Amen.